Would you open up in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3? Now today, you may notice I have two Bibles. I'm preaching from the King James this morning. So if you have another translation, you may want to consider grabbing your pew Bible and having that as well. Let me briefly explain that. Um, the first thing that I do whenever I'm getting ready to preach is I take the passage and I, I just translate it. I'm not getting ready to I'm not thinking about how I'm going to preach it or anything. Whenever I do that, 99% of the time, the English Standard Version, the version that I use, um, is very similar to what, what comes out. This week, that wasn't the case. There's a couple of translation decisions that have to be made in this passage, and I happen to agree with the King James on these. I'm not saying that the, that the ESV or any other translation, whether you use NIV, NLT, NASB, if you have a, a reputable translation that's uh, popular and, and well-known, you can trust that translation. It's a good Bible translation. But there's a couple, there, there are always passages that are, are difficult to translate. We have to make decisions about these. And 1 Peter 3 is one of those passages. So I'm going to use the King James today because I think it's a little bit clearer on a couple of phrases. And that's especially important because we're addressing a difficult topic. We're talking about gender roles. And I don't want to be unclear when we're discussing this. So that's, that's why we've gone with this translation. And so... This particular passage is not difficult to understand, so, um, but if you have any questions about that, uh, feel free to ask me. But let's pray together, and then we'll come to the scriptures. Father, your word is true and right and good. Would you write it on our hearts this morning? Would you sanctify us by it? Would you wash us by it? By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you reveal your will for us, that we may Walk in your way, that our hearts may be changed. We ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear God's word from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of their wives. Conversation, conduct, way of life. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plaiting the hair, braiding the hair, or of wearing of gold, or of putting on apparel. But let, let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the weaker vessel, unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our Lord stands forever. So this morning, I'm going to teach you a little Greek philosophy. Don't be intimidated by that. Uh, we're going to talk about Aristotle for a minute. Aristotle, he wrote this book called Politics, and he begins in an interesting place. When we, we, when we think about politics, we tend to think about Government, we think about taxes, we think about foreign policy. 
But that's not where Aristotle goes. Instead, this is how, what he says when he begins his politics. He says, in the first place, there must be a union of those who cannot exist without each other. For example, male and female, that the race may continue. The family is the association established by nature for the supply of men's everyday needs. This is the way that we're created. It's built into who we are. We're made for families. We're made to live in community with one another. And for Aristotle, that's the foundation of society. And the Bible happens to agree with that. Throughout the Bible, God is not primarily working with individuals. Individuals are important. But what he primarily does is he works with households. So when he created Adam, he says that Adam's loneliness is not good. And then he made Eve. During the flood, he saved Noah, but he also saved Noah's whole household. He called Abraham's household into the promised land. And in Acts 2, through Peter, he promises salvation to households. And that's all through the book of Acts. That's part of the reason we baptize infants today. But this, this raises a couple of problems for us. First, because of the foundational nature of households. The household is always under attack. So in the days of Aristotle and the Apostle Peter, who were um, kind of in a similar cultural situation, the, the prevailing problem was a radical bifurcation. Aristotle talks about how in his day, women were seen as no better than slaves. They were on the same level. And that's a very similar context that Peter's living in. The Greco-Roman world saw women as essentially just slaves. Today, we're under attack from the opposite direction. It's no longer radical bifurcation, it's radical egalitarianism. Our culture seeks to completely break down differences between men and women. That's what the homosexual and transgender movements are about. They're, they're violating God's laws, they're violating nature's laws, and remaking a version of the family in their own image that's perfectly egalitarian and perfectly equal. And so as Christians, we need to reject both of these things. We need to reject a radical bifurcation, but we also need to reject a radical egalitarianism defense of the family. So that's the first problem, but there's another problem. The world, the culture, is attacking families, but the gospel also presents attack on families. This is Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is divisive. And the family is not safe from that. That puts Christians in a really difficult position. On the one hand, we do have this responsibility to faithfully serve our families, to build them up in the image that God has called them to be. But on the other hand, our profession of the Lordship of Christ will make that incredibly difficult, especially when our families are not all on the same page. That's the situation that Peter's audience is facing. That's what they're dealing with. In particular, the congregations he's writing to had many wives whose husbands were unbelievers. And they were trying to navigate faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to their families at the same time. Some of you are facing similar situations. Maybe some of you have experienced husband and wife conflict, but... Peter's advice extends beyond that as well. Some of you are single. 
Some of you have children, some of you don't have children. So while this, this passage is going to most directly deal with husbands and wives, I, I don't want the rest of you to check out. Because these principles are useful to all people. They give us guidance. But his main point is this. The gospel requires us to pursue godliness in all of our relationships. The gospel requires us to pursue godliness in all of our relationships. So first, the gospel calls wives to godliness. Now you'll notice, wives have six verses, husbands have one. There are reasons for that. But when when Peter's talking to wives, he gives us kind of two sections. He has a broad principle, then a more specific application. So first, let's look at the broad principle. Verse 1. He says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation, way of life, conduct of their wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. So Peter begins this passage with the same command that he gives regarding civil authorities and the same command he gives regarding uh, slaves and masters. He says to be subject. We do get this extra word, though, thrown in, which is interesting. Instead of saying simply be subject to your husbands, he says be subject to your own husbands. Now, remember, in Peter's day, women are considered to be on the level of slaves. And so he's, he's trying to be abundantly clear here. The subjection called for is not a general subjection of all women to all men. It's a voluntary subjection that a woman enters into an agreement with a man, with one man. So wives are to be subject to their own husbands, not to husbands generally. One of the main errors that people make in interpreting passages like this is to assume that the apostles considered women to be inferior in essence to men. But that's a, that's a far cry from what Peter and the other biblical authors are getting at. In fact, he's actually trying to guard against the idea that women are slaves. He's trying to elevate them in his culture. He's trying to elevate them from the position that they have culturally. And that will become even more clear as we look at exhortations for husbands. But why is this the case? Why does Peter want women to be subjects to their husbands? First, he's certainly recognizing that households have a natural order. Wives submitting to their husbands is a pure thing, a holy thing, and it contributes to the second reason, which is that wives are to submit to their husbands for the sake of the gospel. Notice that this is particularly addressed to women whose husbands do not obey the word. It certainly applies to all wives. But it's addressed to these women who are in situations where their husbands are not believers, who don't obey the word, which is, in this context, the gospel. He says that there'll be one without a word. Now that's an obvious play on the word word. But he's not suggesting that these men will magically see their wives' behavior and suddenly become Christians. What he is saying, though, is that the holiness of their wives will confront these men with the holiness of God. You see that phrase, coupled with fear, in verse 2? Now, that's not the fear of the women, which is a, a way that some translations take it. The, the, word in, the phrase in fear there, coupled with fear there, is actually attached to the men's beholding. They are beholding in fear. And when they see the holiness of their wives, Peter says it will strike fear in them. That's, by the way, how the holiness of God works. You remember, you remember Isaiah 6, 
Isaiah is caught up in this vision. He's brought before God. And what's the first thing he says? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Confronted with the holiness of God, Isaiah was afraid. That same holiness that makes Isaiah fear is the same holiness that Christians carry with them by the Spirit. That's why, remember, in 1 Peter 1, he echoes this phrase from Leviticus, this promise. You shall be holy, for I am holy. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So when people see our holiness, they are seeing the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So, wives, what do your husbands see in you? Do they see the holiness of God? Are they confronted with the power of the gospel? Christian, when your neighbor sees you, what do they see? Do they see Christ? The work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts should be evident in our actions. Because our actions, our conduct, our way of life adorn the gospel. That brings us to Peter's application of this principle. Look at verse 3. Who's adorning... Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair, of wearing gold or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well and are not afraid of any amazement. Now, let me begin by pointing out that Peter is not a legalist. He's not suggesting that braids and jewelry are sinful, because if he's suggesting that, he's also suggesting that clothes are sinful. And we don't want to pursue that line of thinking. He's not telling wives that they have to refer to their husbands as Lord. And in fact, that kind of legalism completely misses the point of what Peter's trying to get at. Too many people make, take this passage to make sweeping judgments about how women should dress and act outwardly. And if we do that, we're, we're missing the point. Vanity is possible for both the extravagant, for people who are, are caught up in the braiding of the hair and, and jewelry and clothes and things like that. But it's also possible for the scrupulous who are so concerned with, with legalistically obeying this passage that they throw out all their jewelry, and, but all of a sudden they're focused on the outward appearance again, right? But Peter's focus is not there. His focus is on the hidden man of the heart, or the hidden person of the heart, not on outward appearances. Now, of course, the Bible calls us to modesty generally, but the specifics have to be worked out in your own households, in your own cultures, if you want to throw away your jewelry and start calling your husband Lord, then go for it. That's your own business. But you need to know that Peter never actually commands that. This isn't what he's getting at. So what is he getting at? What is he trying to tell us? Well, his focus is on the state of the spirit. Instead of talking about what is outward, he talks about what is hidden. Gold is corruptible, but the heart in Christ is incorruptible. The world expects us to be reactionary, to be loud, but God calls us to have a peaceful spirit. Why? It's because those things are actually valuable in God's sight. Peter, Peter really illuminates this point by um, pointing to Sarah and Abraham. 
It's interesting. You know, there's only one place in the book of Genesis that Sarah actually refers to Abraham as Lord. And it's when she's laughing about the fact that she's been told she's going to have a son. It's not Sarah's best moment. But that's just one illustration of the kind of relationship that Sarah and Abraham have. The kind of relationship that Peter actually commends. Sarah is anything but a passive observer in Abraham's life. She's actually an active participant in the promises that are given to Abraham. Consistently, Sarah is the one who calls Abraham to faithfulness. And in fact, Abraham is said to obey Sarah on three separate occasions. God called Abraham into various dangerous and complicated situations, and Abraham is clearly intimidated by them. And he's constantly throwing his wife in front of him to to save him from these situations. But it is Sarah who approaches them boldly, not being afraid of any amazement. And all the while, in, in the midst of all of this, she remains submissive to Abraham and honors him as the head of the household. There are points in their relationship where she could buck against him, she could be mad at him, she could accuse him, but she doesn't. And it's her boldness and her faithfulness that actually brings Abraham through these terrors. Because Sarah fears God, she's able to live at peace with Abraham. Because Sarah fears God, she's able to call her household to faithfulness. And because Sarah fears God, she's not afraid of anything that threatens her. So what is your inner man like, your inner person like? Is your spirit at peace? Are you seeking to please God? Or are you focused on outward appearances? Are you seeking to please the world? See that the hidden man of the heart, the incorruptible, is valuable in the sight of God. These outward, external things fade away, they corrupt. But God looks at the heart, and ultimately, a pure heart is what flows out in the gospel obedience in the world. That's what wives are called to do before their husbands, and that's what we're all called to do before the world. To live at peace with ourselves, to live at peace in our hearts, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to have that flow out into obedience to him first and foremost. The gospel calls wives to godliness. Second, the gospel calls husbands to godliness. Look at verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So wives, you've got six verses, and your husbands only get one. Why is that? Well, word count doesn't tell us actually a whole lot, because Peter's ab- admonition to husbands is just as serious is what we get to wives. He he tells husbands to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. Now that's an interesting word, according to knowledge. And the natural question that follows is what kind of knowledge are we actually talking about? And the answer is knowledge of your wife, of who she is. And he tells us two things that you need to know about your wives. First of all, he says wives are the weaker vessel. Now, in the 21st century, that's a really scandalous thing to say. If Peter tweeted that, he would, he would be canceled immediately, right? We need to be careful, though, not to impose our modern 21st century ideas onto the Bible. So what is Peter referring to? 
Most immediately, what he's probably referring to is physical strength. In general, men are stronger than women. So men should not use their physical strength to impose themselves on women in violence. That's kind of the surface level way to approach that. But we can dig a little bit deeper. How many of you have, have two sets of dishes? In our house, we have two sets of dishes. A bunch of them are, so one of them is what we use every day, and a bunch of those are chipped, they're cracked, we throw them in the microwave, we like defrost chicken on them, sometimes you get Play-Doh on them, and you're, you know, it's a, that sort of thing. But we also have this other set of dishes that I think I may have laid my eyes on twice. I've only ever eaten off, off these dishes once since we've been married. This is our, our fine china. It's very fragile, but it's also beautiful and valuable. When Peter uses the term weaker vessel, that's, that's the kind of thing that it should evoke in your head. Fine china. For example, I got her permission before I'm using this example, but my wife is nine months pregnant, and that makes her weak. She can barely tie her own shoes. But her weakness is a sign of her value. She's not weak because she's worthless. She's weak because she's doing something of infinite value, and she's doing something that I can't do. So men are called to treat their wives in this way. They're called to be cherished. They're, they're to be cherished. They're to be guarded. They're to be valued and honored. Because in some ways they're weaker than you. But there's another thing that you need to know about your wives. They're weaker in the flesh, but they are equal in the sight of God. Galatians 3.28 reminds us there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, that does not mean that the differences between men and women are gone. We're not the same. And in heaven, if you're a man, you will be a man in heaven. You'll be a woman in heaven if you're a woman. Just as Jesus, as he was a man on earth, remains a man in heaven. But whether you're a man or a woman, we're all saved in the same way by the same Christ, from the same sins. We all obtain the same inheritance before God. And so what this is actually doing is, again, elevating women, right? Women are valuable, but they're also equal. They're not less than men. They're not like slaves. They actually belong on the top shelf. Finally, Peter attaches a reason to this. He says to dwell with your wives according to knowledge, that your prayers not be hindered. Now, that should strike fear in all of us. The word there, hindered, it gives you this idea of our prayers bouncing off the ceiling. Why is that the case? Well, Jesus repeatedly warns us that the measure with which we measure will be measured back to us. Our love for one another is a sign of our faithfulness to Christ. If we break fellowship with one another, if we dishonor one another, we break fellowship with and we dishonor Jesus Christ. That's a dangerous prospect. You don't want to be out of fellowship with your Savior. And Peter warns us against that possibility. So husbands, if you want to remain in fellowship with Christ, if you want to remain in fellowship with his people, you need to love and honor your wives. 
The family, again, is the foundation of all of our relationships. And if your family is broken by dishonor, you put them in danger, along with your church, along with your community. So honor your wives and their weakness, and honor them as your equals before God. Now, there's no such thing as a perfect family. All of us, husbands, wives, others, all of us will fail at times in our duties. People get divorced. People are abusive. People are adulterous. And until Jesus returns, we're going to continue to deal with all those things. But there is hope. Ultimately, all of our marriages, all of our families are merely reflections of the household of God. Husbands and wives are always having to work to honor each other, but a day will come when that is no more. Jesus Christ died, and he rose again to redeem a people unto himself, and that people is his bride. Even today, as we sit here, he's standing before God, praying for us, and purifying us, and preparing us for the wedding feast of the Lamb. So take heart in that. Even when our own marriages falter, even when we disobey, there is forgiveness for us in Christ. And he continues to intercede and purify us. He washes us with the word and he makes us new for him. So seek his grace. Seek his forgiveness. And seek to be conformed to his image. Seek to be conformed to the one who died for you and who rose again and who purchased you from all of your sins. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.